Hello and welcome to At Home With, a podcast from the residential business at Knight Frank. At Home With offers a glimpse inside the lives of some of the world's foremost property experts and their clients. And every week you'll be hearing conversations with interesting people from across the world about how they made it to where they are today, how they found their dream homes and how we can help you find yours. I'm your host, journalist and social media executive at Knight Frank, Rebecca Hills. Today I'm back with another exciting episode with our head of international residential, Mark Harvey. Mark and I had an incredible conversation touching on everything from his beginnings as an avocado farmer in Spain to how his mental health has been impacted by COVID-19. This is such an eclectic and inspiring episode that really highlights the power of vulnerability when it comes to cultivating success. Prior to pursuing a career in property, Mark worked as a headhunter before moving to Spain to become an avocado farmer. However, this was before the time of the millennial brunch phenomenon, and so Mark moved over into the world of property instead. After two years in Marbella, Mark moved to Knight Frank in 2007 as a new business manager in our international residential development team. Since then, he has risen through the ranks to become the head of European residential and now head of international. And if this wasn't enough, Mark is also multilingual and has unrivaled knowledge of the French and Spanish markets. Mark, it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Becky. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? How's your week been so far? Uh, pretty busy. Um, we've um, we've just come out of the sort of uh, full sort of lockdown easement and um, full lockdown period, and uh, we we are now um, starting to see people really come back in earnest um, with demands um, from all across our network in Europe and and of course in the UK, uh, which is rather exciting. Um, so um, having been um, on a on a on a particular level for a number of weeks, I suddenly find myself absolutely um, manic again, which is great. Great news. So over the summer, when the lockdown restrictions were were eased somewhat and people could start travelling again, people were flocking to places like France and Spain and Portugal before the quarantines came into place. How did you see that reflected in the in the property markets in those areas? Well, there was a, a, a literally a, a sort of stampede, you know, out of the starting blocks. Um, we had um, obviously, several months of you know pent up demand, the combination of the end of lockdown and also the sort of seasonality, i.e., beginning of the summer, um, combined to make a, an absolute sort of a, a wall of demand. Um, we we saw inquiries go up something like 70% over our sort of five-year average, which was remarkable. Not only was demand high, but also the view, it translated into viewings, and I'm glad to say um, transactions. Obviously, the most people are really focused on those areas where outside of the cities, principally, at the moment. And, you know, particularly in France, which seems to have sort of... Um, coped, if you wish, with the transition and, and, and the virus better, at least in the first sort of um, phases, um, was really the sort of main beneficiary of this activity. Um, about 60% or so of transactions um, this summer were realized in France, um, which means actually that a lot of our network has actually seen record trading conditions, which was not what we expected, obviously, when we went into this back in sort of March. Um, other areas that have perhaps sort of been slower to catch up um, would include the cities, obviously those um, lifestyle cities, I sometimes refer to them as Airbnb cities, um, the likes of Berlin and, and Lisbon and Barcelona have been a little bit slower to, to recover for, for obvious reasons, but 
again, I think, you know, given the the value that these places um, offer and the lifestyle that they that they conjure up and and and, and offer, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, again, a sort of a gr- slight a growing trajectory of demand and transactions. So um, I think really feeding frenzy over the summer, things have quietened down a bit. I think with people going back to kids going back to school, people going back to the offices and, and sort of perhaps a, a second wave starting to um, to prevail, we're, we're probably going to see demand um, drop a little bit now. Um, and as we enter into the winter, you know, all eyes on the, on the Alps and those sort of sunny destinations like the Caribbean, Eastern and Western USA. Mm, and it's great that the market's managed to recover so well over the summer and that you're able to transact and resume viewings again. But as you mentioned there, we're now moving into this second phase of Korean virus where there's the possibility of a second lockdown everything was a little bit more ambiguous and up in the air and obviously that creates feelings of uncertainty and anxiety so i'd be really interested to know if you're comfortable talking about it how coronavirus and kind of working during these environments affected your your mental health and how you cope with your mental health more generally Thanks for the, asking the question. It, it, it's a it's a tough one, and it and it's somewhere which and it's a, it's difficult to often be completely sort of honest about these things. But there's no doubt that um, on a personal level, um, you know. Um, I've suffered and, and found it incredibly challenging, like numerous other people have, through the lockdown period and, and since. Um, I think getting maintaining that routine and um, you know sort of physical routine, and also um, the kind of work and professional routine, you know, has has proved quite tough. It's fair to say, um, you know, we're, we're we're animals of of habit, creatures of habit, and we like structure. And I think you know, in, in some ways, this is sort of destroyed everything that we previously sort of relied on. Um, I certainly feel that going back into the office, um, albeit tentatively two, three days a week, has proved incredibly uh, positive for me, giving me some sort of return to normality in inverted commas. And again, you know, the rest of my staff, I think, and the sort of the wider teams that I speak to have, have also shared that sort of feeling too, of going back into Baker Street and our headquarters, et cetera, et cetera, rather than being caught at home constantly, um, where the sort of sanctity of home is being somewhat encroached upon by work. Um, so uh, I think um, that that's certainly been a, a release and a relief for, for, for me. Obviously, mental health is obviously before COVID. You know, this is a this is a big topic, and and it's something that again I'm I you know having had my own challenges in the past. You know, I'm a night Frank were incredibly supportive to me during those years, and um, I was able to really sort of take a step back and and ponder and consider and and heal and address some of my own sort of issues, and. Um, and I really, um, I suppose, I hope that everybody, you know, has the opportunity um, and the luxury to be able to do that because it's absolutely crucial. We spend a lot of time sort of in the gym, going for runs, um, etc. You know, you need to put that same effort and same commitment into your mental health. Um, and um, I think there's never been a more relevant time to do that, a more important time to sort of get a grip on that um, in inverted commas. Mm, no, I think that's incredibly important to recognise because I think a lot of the time, especially with discussions around COVID, it tends to be a lot of talking about the physical side of it, talking about people physically getting ill, but actually the mental side of it is a huge, huge topic and it's not being addressed anywhere near as much as it should be. So I think people will find that really useful to hear. No, good, good. And um, uh, it, it's very personal to me. Um, I've, I've also... Um, 
um, have a, a disabled brother, um, and he he's really struggled through this period because, you know, he again, you know, depends on structure and routine. Um, he's he's in a home, and um, and you know the inability f- for us to see him, for him to see us, to visit us, for us to go to him and to go out, go for his sort of daily walks, et cetera, they've shielded, you know, it's had a, it's really taken quite a toll on, on him. And, you know, and he's just one example of so many other sort of cases of, of families and, and, and situ- sort of situations around the country and the world, of course. And um, as you rightly say, I don't think it's being really sort of addressed um, and talked about enough. I do try and have this conversation with my team, my staff. I'm, I'm not too sort of invasive, but, you know, it, it's something that I always bring up in the conversation. Um, and and it's incredible how, how many people actually do struggle, you know, even if it is, you know, to a very small scale. And um, I think we, the powers of being, need, need to do more about this and need to be incredibly vigilant about it, you know, particularly now. Mm, absolutely. It's so unbelievably important and so pertinent at the moment. So thank you so much for opening up about it and, and talking about it. And it's definitely something that we'll cover later on in our conversation as we move more into things in your personal life and touch more on your personal history. But to begin the conversation, I'd like to take a step back and find out a little bit more about what it was that made you decide to pursue a career in property in the first place. It's just before the turn of the millennium uh, that um, my my fiance at the time and I decided that we would move to Spain um, to explore an alternative um, life. And um, at the time, I was very keen on on being um, an avocado farmer, believe it or not. Um, and we moved to southern Spain and got on that journey. Um, but it wasn't too long before actually um, the voice of reason prevailed, i.e. my wife. And um, we quickly made our way down to the coastline where um, we started to look around for something to do and um, and something to keep us occupied. I, I sort of fell into a little bit of um, speculative property and um, uh, one day I, I was sort of kicking my heels and uh, the agency which I'd been dealing with um, suggested that I join them and it was as simple as that and the next thing I knew I was learning all about residential sales and um, and the market in southern Spain. And um, I spent the best part of 10 years down there. Um, when I left, I was running three offices and um, had a number of staff. And um, yes, it was all great. We had our children in southern Spain. And um, yes, and I suppose the rest is history. I don't think I've en- ever heard of anybody having a career ambition to be an avocado farmer before. Why, what was it about avocados that you particularly wanted to get into? Well, it just so happened that um, at the time, no one, believe it or not, wanted avocados. And um, they were clearly not the, the sort of cash crop that they are today. And um, it, it was a very um, attractive offer that um, I came across in southern Spain with, um, you know, acres and acres of, of these mature, mature trees. And I rather like the, the idea of being a sort of gentleman farmer, I suppose, um, which is probably a bit crazy when I look back on it. Um, but uh, obviously, avocados have become incredibly fashionable, very expensive. And actually, um, I probably would have been the sort of avocado king by now. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think you're just a few years too early. The millennials quite weren't, weren't quite ready for their, their bottomless brunches on Sundays yet. And so you moved into, into property as a more kind of sensible and sustainable career path. What was it like in those, those early stages working in, working in Spain? 
Well, it was very daunting, actually. Um, I, I'd arrived in an area which I didn't really know that well. Um, I was um, operating in a market uh, which was completely foreign to me um, in a language, obviously, that um, wasn't my, my, my first language. Uh, but it was also incredibly exciting because the, the sort of first few years of um, the millennium uh, were, were, were incredible. And um, a lot of people were buying second homes. And um, there was a whole sort of boom, dot-com boom going on in the background and huge wealth creation. And actually, southern Spain was an incredibly dynamic market. Um, and um, I, it was incredible to sort of go through from from selling my first apartment, which was maybe you know 100,000 euros or, or pesetas at the time would, would have been you know, the equivalent in pesetas, to to suddenly um, when I left operating in in very high profile uh, top top end um, developments like Sierra Blanca and, and La Zagaleta in Marbella, which are, which are very famous. Um, and um, so it was a, a tremendously exciting period in our lives. Uh, we were much more dynamic and young in those days. We had our children in Spain and um, yeah, it was a rather magical period actually. And how, I suppose at the time it was obviously different, but how did the Spanish property market differ from the, the UK and how does it still differ? I think in those days, it's fair to say that it um, was a little bit frontier. Um, I think the the practices um, were were somewhat below what might, one might sort of expect today. And actually, Spain and 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 subsequently, the um, legislation that has been put into place um, has has gone up exponentially. Um, so I think some of the practices were a little bit suspect and I must say I was a little bit surprised uh, when I was there and actually the way that I sort of carved out my reputation or, or um, was really by sort of acting in the very best interest of, of, our, of my customers and clients and, and of course the firms. Um, previously it's worth noting that I was a headhunter and, and I used to specialize in lawyers so it was always my, my approach to be 100% clear and, and honest and um, transparent, even if it meant um, losing a particular transaction or particular fee. Um, so in those days, I think um, it, they were, the, the market was full of rather sort of maverick characters, um, which which obviously kind of you know reflected the the times. I hasten to add that Spain today is very tightly controlled. Legislation has come on a, a great deal, particularly since 9-11 in terms of KYC and money laundering aspects. So, you know, what was going on back then certainly doesn't occur anymore. Um, and actually it's a very well sort of policed and professional um, um, market these days. You alluded to um, to kind of trust and transparency there. And when I've been having these conversations on this podcast, trust and transparency are things that come up time and time again as central to being um, successful within the property industry and quite frankly, every industry. What was it that made you realise how important trust and transparency were? I think it was something that, you know, is innately sort of built into me, uh, maybe from, from my upbringing. Bringing. But um, I, I remember sometimes, and it was a valuable lesson that I learned, you know, is often imparting bad news to, to buyers um, and hence putting a particular sale or transaction on the line um, is better than, you know, trying to fudge it or 
you know, brush the problems under the carpet because they will always resurface later and they will always come back um, and, and damage both yourself and the business that you're representing. And very early on, um, and it wasn't really a conscious decision necessarily, but um, I've always preferred to act in this way. And uh, there have been numerous situations where I've been in a position where I've had to, you know, as I said, in part, share bad news with a potential vendor um, and, and with the potential risk of compromising the, 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 the deal. Some cases it's it's worked in my favor, other times it it, it hasn't. And the, you know, but it, but sometimes, you know, and I say this to my, my staff and those around me, um, sometimes the best deals are the ones that you don't do actually, um, because um, you don't want the trouble that ensues. Um, there was a, a particular incident um, with a, um, a captain of industry um, who had, um, who had fallen in love, he and his wife, with a with a very um, high-end property in Marbella. And they really had set their heart on this. And um, we'd agreed a price. And uh, it was all moving forward very, very well. I was very excited. It was going to be one of the, the sort of biggest sales that I'd ever completed on. And I discovered over the weekend that the previous owner had had a, a, a fatal um, incident um, or accident on the on the lands, which um, which I only discovered, and everybody within the community, which was very tight, knew about this. And um, obviously, I didn't want him to to discover this um, after the event. Um, so I I sort of you know got the courage, rang him up, and told him. And he said, "Well, thank you very much, Mark. And I will um, talk to my wife, and we'll come back to you." And of course, I thought, "Well, that was it." You know. I don't think he's going to want to go through with this. Anyway, he came back and he was incredibly thankful. Um, he was incredibly uh, impressed by that sort of mature approach. Um, and actually, he's been a very uh, loyal um, customer and friend since, I'm glad to say. So um, it just goes to show that sometimes, you know, um, you know, your does not just sometimes, it really does pay off to be totally clear and um, and precise and transparent with your with your customers mm, and it's that that kind of relationship that you build with customers and clients throughout your career but especially in those those early stages that gives it that longevity and it means that you can have those kind of trusting relationships as you go on and then you moved from Marbella in Spain to Knight Frank what was the decision behind coming back to England but continuing to work at International? The the decision to move was predominantly um, driven by the family Um, the kids as I I said uh, were born in Spain and uh, they were they hit the age of sort of seven and five and um, I think my wife was was missing um, her her brother and sister who were also having children similar age the wider family etc and um, it was really driven by personal motives Um, the um, the timing people often tell me was exceptional because of course the the following year um, there was the beginning of the um, the subprime crisis and and subsequent sort of financial crisis so but it wasn't at all planned in that way I hasten to add Um, and um, I had one firm in mind uh, when I made that conscious decision to move back and um and that was night frank and you know we had a, a couple of meetings and they welcomed me with open arms which was which was fantastic and you began in the um international residential development sector why did you choose to get into that initially or was it more i want to be at night frank and this is where the opportunity is at the time i felt that uh, my experience um, had been so 
should we say, di diverse. And I had um, occupied such sort of senior position. Um, and I'd been increasingly involved with developers and, 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 and developments across um, the southern part of Spain that um, I had it in my head that I really quite enjoyed that part of the business and advising on resorts and, revise, and advising on, um, on developments uh, branded or non-branded. And it was something that I was actually um, very good at. And, my, and, and for, for years, I was, I was offering this advice for, for free in inverted commas to would-be developers. Um, so when I came tonight, Frank, um, really, it was, it was all about saying, right, well, there's the experience. You know, why don't we try and sort of monetize this somehow and um, at the time you know as I said pre-crisis the, the the international res dev team was was very substantial uh, back then and we were we were going from you know the sort of Indian Ocean to to the Caribbean it was a very sort of broad broad experience and um, I loved it and I thought that I was much more suited should we say at that stage of my career than to go into a more traditional resale market very focused a little bit compartmentalized which would have been at the time so, um, so that's where I spent the, the next sort of couple of years. Of course, the financial crisis sort of did sort of put a natural end to that because the banks stopped stopped lending and uh, and you know um, the the team shrunk um, to to three or four. And um, when it got to the fact that it was the partner, his PA, and me, um, the writing was definitely on the wall. <laughs> so uh, um, my my line manager Paddy uh, Dring, in this case, um, um, in in with great wisdom, decided to um, move me into France, which is obviously one of the languages that I speak. And uh, that's why I began into, into the res resale business, essentially, on the Côte d'Azur. And what was the experience of the financial crisis and the kind of the team diminishing and having to move? What was that like? Was that really difficult to, to weather? It was a very dark period, I must say. Uh, it, it was a very, it was, this was when Knight Frank was still um, occupying various offices around Hanover Square. We were a very disjointed business. Um, you know, there wasn't the the connection the and the relationships that exist today which have made Knight Frank extraordinary and propelled us into a different um, level altogether. The, the the combination of the financial crisis, the combination of me being under so much pressure, the, these were dark times I must say and and it and it you know it it, it was part of my sort of growth if you wish um, but um, I'm I was I must say, having weathered the storm, that only made me stronger, more determined, and actually better equipped in some ways to sort of weather future storms, um, one of which we're sort of um, going through at the moment, I dare say. People talk a lot about failure being important to kind of helping you grow, but it is the experiences that you have that, that help you grow as a person and grow in your career. 100%, 100%. And, and you know, being resilient um, is really crucial in our business. Um, we, agents, is is notoriously tough and even if it's a primary market and driven by primary needs the challenges um, our guys face on the high street you know really are a very a very difficult and unpredictable and it and it takes a certain type of person to be able to kind of dust yourself down after the weekend having sort of lost or, or won a deal and, and reinvent yourself and, and keep going um, and international I guess those uh, vagaries uh, are much 
much more unpredictable. And some, sometimes the disappointments can be much steeper. And you can be working with customers on, on transactions for, for years, actually, in some cases. Um, we, we sell second homes. So these are aspirational purchases, which people don't really need. So, um, you know, you can be very quickly disappointed um, or come to a dead end um, suddenly. So uh, the ability to pick yourself up and keep going is, is important. So resilience, stamina, you know, these, these are things that you have to have if you are going to succeed in, in real estate, be it the domestic market or indeed internationally. And obviously resilience is important and you've mentioned that, but on a more practical level, how do you practice that resilience? Is there any kind of way that you go about, okay, something's gone wrong, there's a difficult situation here. What do you put into place to make sure that you're able to cope with that as well as possible? I think it's really important to have a good team around you firstly, a team that you can trust and that trusts you. Um, resilience can be mitigated by anticipation and you know the one thing about experience which is wonderful is that you can often anticipate problems so you know if you can anticipate a problem it means that you're you're going to have less of a battle and a less of a challenge on your hands um, and I think having that being able to convey that to, to, to the team and obviously it's something that I learned um, makes it so much easier you know it will take a lot of there's a lot of things that we can't control but those things that you can control and, and anticipate ahead of time you know like getting you know all of your sort of filing in place and 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 your due diligence is all done you know and you've you've asked all of the questions that you need to ask you know it's often that one question that you didn't ask that is the one that's going to sort of create all the problem and potentially um, uh, capsize the deal and to somebody just starting out in property, kind of looking at your career and wanting to pursue kind of a similar path, what advice would you give to them? You kind of mentioned the importance of resilience and trust and transparency, but if someone came to you and said, I want to do exactly what you're doing, how would you tell them to get into it and what points would you give them? I think you've got to be um, really passionate about what you do. And it maybe sounds like a bit of a cliche, but you know, you can't do what we do without being really um, committed. And you've got to love property, of course, but you've got to love people. You've got to love that engagement, be it both sides of the, the coin. You've got to be a little bit of a, a, a chameleon. You've got, to, you've got to be able to adapt to different situations, uh, be it types of people or, um, um, or scenarios. And I think, you know, the ability to be able to, you know, flick from one to another is all important but but passion is key, is key i think also uh, and i've had a lot of people you know come to me and and want to join international and the the idea of it is seems very sort of um, glamorous as i've said earlier but but the truth is um you know you you can't just sort of jump into an international really without having had some kind of a platform in sales and and i think you know being able to um you know, do the volume if you wish before, you know, do the phone, the, the sort of the, the less glamorous stuff that everybody sort of forgets about, um, you know, is, is a, an essential component to, to being successful. So being able to carve your teeth, if you wish, in a, in a domestic market, um, be, it, be it London or regional market, it, it doesn't really matter. But understanding the dynamics, um, understanding people, um, that sort of psychology, I think is really important. And with international in particular, you know, these are very, um, generally sophisticated well-traveled well-heeled people and they prefer often to deal with someone who's got a little bit more maturity but um, but I think you know if from a domestic perspective from a from a, a straightforward residential sales 
obstinacy, you know, passion, um, discipline, commitment, um, enthusiasm, you know, and, and the willingness to work as a team. You know, you can't do everything. You're not good at everything. So just make sure that, you know, the people around you are, are helping you and vice versa. You know, building that trust within the team is, is, is just as important. Um, so, you know, people skills are invaluable. Mm, and I think that life experience is a really important point because, I mean, in relation to, to politics, people say a lot about, talk about a lot about career politicians and how it's actually the, the MPs who have had a previous career and have had experience before they go into politics that are the most successful and can bring the most to it. So I suppose it's, it's relatable to all sorts of career paths. And if you need those, those people skills and, and that ability to be more adaptable, that's something that's only going to grow over time. And the more experienced you are, the better you're going to be at something. 100%. And I and and you know don't get me started on politics, but but when I when I look at the the the, the quality of leadership that we have um, at Night Frank and and you know you know you can see it during tough times you know how how one a business responds to, to challenges be they you know global on a global scale or, or or more or more micro you know this is what what makes a leadership and um, I think our leadership has been tested to the, to the nth degree when you look at the last 15 years or so I mean these have been extraordinary times but um what I would like to say is that I'd love to see some of these leaders, you know, business leaders going into politics because I think they would bring a, a great deal of value um, and, um, and fresh air, I might add. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I agree with you. Having done a politics degree and studied these people, I can definitely agree with you on that. So as you mentioned earlier, you then moved from the kind of residential development side into the, into the French team. What was that like? What was it like working in France, having worked in Spain previously? It was wonderful, actually. I, I really enjoyed it because um, what I what I discovered then was that obviously, um, you know, being parked in London and being able to sort of offer this international um, extension, if you wish, to our to our to our network of offices has its day to day challenges. And the first one that one has to overcome is is being accepted. You know, so you know who's this guy, what's he bringing to the table, etc. And what I what they found very quickly was that I was able to speak their language, um, not just um, French, but also um, their language as agents. I understood their day-to-day -day challenges. I understood their, their issues. I could speak to them, you know, and also bring with me, uh, bring to them my, my experience. And, and actually, I think it was, it was transformational in, in many ways, both for me and, and for the beginning of the, the French um, network, which has actually grown exponentially since. Um, um, not just in size, but in terms of um, its breadth and its ability. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, we've been successful as a result. But, um, you know, forging those relationships and really delivering value and, and having that engagement with the local team participating is really important. We're not, we're not here just to put bums on aircraft seats. You know, we're, we're here to really genuinely bring value. And that's something which you've got to convey. And all of my team have all had to go through that. You know, and it's one of the first things I say to them, you know, you're not, you're not booking hotels here and flights. You know, you have got to prove to them that you add value. Um, and that was an amazing journey, and I've and I've sort of never looked back. I've I've always loved that aspect of it, you know, be it in France and Italy, Spain, Austria, wherever we we operate. And I'm lucky enough now to have those relationships at, at senior level. Um, I think that's never gone. My enthusiasm for for agency um, is 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 very 
apparent to them and um, they, they see my they ex the experience. So the value added is not to be, um, you know, understated. And you've mentioned that you can speak French and you can speak Spanish. Do you think that when working in international property, that those language skills are essential? Can you get by without them? Most of our network are incredible. Most of them speak English um, to some exceptionally, some to lesser degrees. But um, so you could pass um, and, and some of the team don't speak the languages in which they, they act. Um, but I think it makes a big difference. As I said, you know, you can communicate much better. You can understand the nuances. Um, if someone's got some doubts, if, you, if they're expressing that they're French and they're expressing it to you in English, you may miss the sort of the, the, the minutiae. And, and I think being able to understand that gives you a distinct advantage. Equally, when you get into the sort of nitty gritty of the contracts and you're talking to notaries or you've got an issue with, with something at a local level, it's, it's enormously advantageous if you can just break into, into the local language. Um, and, it, and, it, and it gives them additional respect in you ultimately. Um, you know, so I, I think it, but it, it, it isn't what I would call mandatory. If we're looking to recruit people, I don't put it as mandatory necessity. But do you, I suppose you're saying it's not mandatory, but do you kind of encourage people if they come to the international team and they, and they join in that world, do you encourage them to start learning those, those languages, as, as you just said, to make sure that they can communicate as, as well as possible with clients and customers? Probably not enough, if, if I'm going to be totally truthful. Um, we're, we're lucky enough to have uh, several multilingual people within the team already, primarily Francophile. But actually, where we sort of fall short is is in German, actually, which is tough to find. Um, but, you know, some of the younger team um, are on language courses. There's a couple of them who, one who's been with me a few years now, four years, um, who's doing sort of evening classes. And one more junior who's also just joined the French team is threatening to to learn to learn French which is which is great I'm delighted um, but as I said it, it isn't sort of a, a priority necessarily for me to to be pushing that and perhaps I should you know given I'm a modern language graduate I probably should be making more of an effort. <laughs> and to divert from that ever so slightly you touched on how international can be seen as incredibly glamorous and when people look at property they think oh my goodness that amazing house in the south of France and that it all does look very glossy but what do you find most exciting and enjoyable about your role what is it that really gets you going when you come to work? I think it's the unpredictability of it I suppose I, I, I know that sounds bit crazy but actually there are no two days that are the same I suppose the you know there's always there's always some excitement I, I, I the alarm goes and, and I sort of leap out of bed not quite but almost um, and you know I'm out the door with a smile and um, and I arrive back you know late in the evening generally with a smile on my face then so I, I think it's the variety that that is something that really um, appeals to me i think the the sort of the, the 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 facet the international facet dealing with different cultures and nationalities the the variety of the people that that i'm lucky to um to connect with um and deal with particularly the the clients and customers who you know some of them are very high profile um you know fascinating people um the the agents who've now sort of become friends if not family in a sense um and of course the the the, the responsibility um of the team you know and, I've, and it makes me very proud when i when i when i look at 
some of these guys, not, not some of them, all of them, but you know, the ones that have, that have come and are very young and they've grown and uh, they've, they've developed and, and that makes me incredibly proud and I feel very fortunate to be doing what I do. So I suppose the, the, the combination of all of those things and of course, you know, jumping on a plane at Heathrow, um, Terminal 5 at sort of five in the morning may, you know, is, is quite exciting too, you know, destination unknown. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's, yes, the multitude of, 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 of aspects to the job, which, um, which really sort of, you know, spur me on. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And a lot of people, because there's always statistics coming out about saying that so many people don't enjoy their jobs and don't get out of bed and, and be excited about going into the office. In property and in particular international property, do you think that passion is essential to being successful? I think it's paramount. Um, what we do is 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 tough. Um, you know, my the the, tra- the travel, as we've said, you know, the alarm goes off, you know, between three and four, you know, it could be a day trip, you're back at midnight you know when you're on the ground maybe for months, for several days you're you're sort of being wined and dined you're you're running around from sort of dawn till dusk looking at properties having meetings impromptu pitches I mean it's a sort of constant and uh, you know, sort of collapse in a pile at the end of the day or get home you know you, you've you've got to be passionate about it. Um, you know it, otherwise otherwise the, the the novelty will just wear off and and you'll burn out um, so so yes I mean I think passion has got to be be at the forefront of this. Um. And obviously you've mentioned there that passion is, is really important and that there is this huge unpredictable nature to what you do and that you have to be really passionate about it to stop yourself from burning out. But on a practical level, what else do you do apart from being passionate about it and enjoying what you do to stop yourself from burning out and retain a semblance of work-life balance? I think it's important to have um, other areas where you can perhaps um, sort of leave the property world behind. Um, obviously, you know, I've got a young family um, who keep me on my toes outside of work. Uh, my, my daughter's 18, my son's 16. So they're going through, you know, different phases and um, of, of their of their um, growth, and and that's brilliant. And obviously, I, I love that. Um, we, in terms of sort of relaxation, I suppose, or stress busting, um, I I can't unfortunately play sport that that much anymore um, due to sort of boring injury but um, I, I've, I've most recently got into uh, very long walks again which is, which is great I have much more time now since we're working at home so walking is a great pastime uh, I, I love uh, reading um, I like um, I hate to say it but my son's got me into gaming lately which is which is very foreign to me but uh, but it's quite fun um, and um, and also I have a um, sort of an a lot which has um, started to sort of take up quite a lot of my time, which actually is incredibly therapeutic, um, frankly. And um, you know, it's back-breaking work. Um, and uh, but it, but it's something that I actually quite enjoy. Um, you know, getting getting mucky and um, and seeing the results of that hard labour. And actually, it's lovely to be able to sort of um, you know sort of end the day feeling physically tired rather than sort of mentally tired. Um, there's a big difference there. And linking that on to the the topic of this podcast, when when looking for your home, was that ability to have those that downtime and be in an area where you could go on walks and then have your allotment and have have that more outside green space? Was that important for you? What did you look for when you were looking for your home? Well, actually, we we were very um, pragmatic initially. It was all about. Um, proximity to um, London. So we live to the west of Paddington on the 
Berkshire-Oxfordshire border. And really, you know, that commute was all important for me because, um, because of the, the sheer weight of travel. Um, the schools down here are incredible. So, and of course, nature too. We've got the Thames, we've got the sort of foothills of the Chilterns, um, you know, beautiful, beautiful countryside. Uh, yet, you know, I'm only an hour and 10 minutes to, to the office, really door to door. So it was the perfect balance. Um, the kids have got everything they want. My wife has, does, works part-time. She's um, also a volunteer for the NSPCC. So, so it was all kind of, it worked, you know, on paper for us. And actually, funnily enough, we, we established that from Spain. We'd never lived here, never really been here. I'd been to Henley a few times. But, um, you know, so uh, once we'd identified, right, I've got a job, you know, that's where we're going to live. And it was very much based on pragmatic approach, you know, on the map, this works for us. Um, in terms of the house, where well, we've hopped around a bit in the last um, 13, 14 years since we've been back, and um, everywhere from the Henley region to, which was a, a bit more difficult in terms of commute, um, to um, to where we are now, which is um, Hurst, which is on the Berkshire side, and um, very close to Twyford, which is a big commuter junction. And um, really, it was convenience, I suppose, you know, for all of us. The, the kids have good schools nearby. Um, we're close to London. Fee's got, my wife has got um, family down in Bristol. So um, yeah, it, it just ticked all the boxes, I suppose. And, and as we record, we're recording when, when the world is still in lockdown and everyone's been having a lot of more, a lot more thoughts about where they're living and, and what about their homes they love and what absolutely drives them mad. Is, have you had any moments of, oh my, I'm really, really glad I'm living here or is there a particular part of your house or area that you live in that you've fallen in love with a little bit more since we've all been at home a little bit more? Um, I, I think, I mean, I, do, I don't want to sound ungrateful. I suppose, you know, because I don't need to travel, I don't need to go to London. I, I think I sort of regret that we don't live a little bit further out, a little bit more rural, uh, because obviously there's no real need. I mean, we don't need to drop the kids anywhere. They, they can't go anywhere. So, so I suppose if I, if I, in an ideal world, we'd be far more rural and far further, further away from London than we are now. But uh, um, otherwise, well, listen, with two kids of that age, I mean, they're taking up more and more space. They're becoming more and more noisy my my son's sort of um, speakers seem to be upgraded um every every quarter i'm surprised we don't have any music sort of coming through the roof at this point in time um but, but you know so so i guess our space is probably becoming tighter now that we are in lockdown but you know we, we're incredibly lucky um and and grateful for what we have so i have absolutely no complaints in terms of an ideal world we're probably i think once they've sort of flown the roost which which won't be too long now um well the missus and i will be um looking to downsize i dare say and um and um finding something a bit more probably manageable I, I imagine. And relating it back to your job and your your role in helping a lot of people find their second homes have you got your own second home or have you ever thought about going back to Spain or going to France or or emigrating again? Yeah it's, a, it's, some, it's something that's on my mind and it's a question that does come up a lot um, I think what, the first thing I would say is that we've never really looked back in coming uh, since we've been back in the UK uh, people will say you must miss Spain and the weather and the lifestyle and so on but uh, you know it was a it was a period of our lives and it was a wonderful magical period and you know we've moved to this next one which has been equally magical and and wonderful and and I dare say there'll be hopefully one or two ahead of of, of us um, um in the future so um in terms of going back there I I won't say 
no. Um, I think if I were to go somewhere, it might be a Balearic island, uh, only because of the diversity of the uh, uh, the topography, the, the sort of beach, mountain, the inland bit. Uh, I don't know, there's something rather magical. And where has been the most exciting or your, your favourite place that you've transacted? Or in particular, are there any deals or stories of deals that really stand out in your mind? Well, there are so many. I, I, it's a difficult, it's a very difficult question. Um, I think every single transaction or sale is a celebration in itself, be it you know, a very sort of, you know, more modest figure or, or an incredibly eye-watering um, asking price. I, I think the some of the most um, enjoyable ones, uh, almost fulfilling ones, are the ones that um, revolve around sort of family situations where, you know, there's a, an emergency or an urgency to sell. There's a particularly sort of sensitive file that, that needs um, very gentle handling. Um, those are the ones that tend to appeal to me most, where I managed to get people out of a particular situation, a particular pickle, um, where they need to, you know, maybe return home to the UK, for example, um, rather urgently. And, and we do see that inevitably in, 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 our, in our role, um, where people have maybe up sticks and 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 moved abroad and uh, made their life there um and then you know maybe one sadly one one of the one of them dies or or falls ill and you know they all need to come back and and of course you know it's easier to go that way but coming back is always more difficult and um and I, you know that those are the ones that carry quite a bit of emotion and responsibility with them and i think in many ways they're the most fulfilling actually much more than the sort of the big numbers um which are also very exciting but in a different way the ones where you're really genuinely being people through a difficult time um i think are the ones that for me are the most rewarding certainly and the thread i've noticed throughout what you've been saying in our conversation is that of the importance of human connection when you go into something is that that connection the the focus on people more so than numbers and sales and all that sort of stuff is that human element just really really important to you it is it's it's fundamental um you when you when you take on the responsibility uh, of a mandate a sale um you know you know that there's going to be quite a journey ahead and um in international the, the sales period can be infinitely longer than, than domestic. I mean, some properties will take years to sell um, because of market conditions or it's perhaps a bit of a quirky property. And so having a relationship with that individual uh, is so vital. It's probably the most important thing other than price, of course, and getting getting that right is important and the property itself. But, but, the, but if you don't have that, that ability to communicate with that person one way or another, and I'm not saying you communicate with the same way with everybody um, you have to adapt accordingly but um, but I think that's probably the most vital thing in everything we do um, being able to manage that relationship um, and some of them can be incredibly complicated um, and and very difficult very demanding people and that's fine um, it, it's the ones that are slightly unpredictable um, that are that are more you know maybe you get one message in the morning and another in the afternoon um, which can can be incredibly um, destabilizing. And from what we do, we, we want consistency because the messaging to our buyers and to the market as a whole is vital. And often you've only got one ch chance really and you get the right buyer in and for whatever reason, something's not quite right. Um, so we're, we're always quite, I'm always quite vigilant about that. And, um, and therefore I will 
often allocate properties to different individuals within the team and, and perhaps put them in charge of, of something because I think they may be more able to do so or, or take responsibility for a property that they may be handling because I think I'm probably better suited for it. So yes, I, I, it's not to be underestimated. I think it's less so probably in a, in a sort of high street and a primary market, but I think internationally, it really is quite important. And what I'm picking up there is that value of of empathy and being able to not relate uh, directly to what your clients are going through, but be willing to try and understand and see it from their perspective. Is that something that you you focus on as well? Definitely. I mean, we we have to be able to sort of understand their motivation 100%. Um, and, and often in an environment, you don't necessarily know all the facts. Uh, but um, yes, absolutely the key. Um, and also being able to instill the, a level of confidence in them that, you know, whatever they're going to sort of throw at you, whatever the circumstances, you, you're going to be by their side. That is that is key. Um, you know, come come rain or shine, they know that they can rely on you and, and Knight Frank to, to deliver the goods ultimately. And now you've been at, at Knight Frank for, for a long time and you've moved into the kind of head of international role. How do you ensure that you're, you're still always learning and making sure that you're as useful and as educated and knowledgeable for your clients as possible? It's, it's a good question because I always sort of live by the, the, the mantra that no one really is irreplaceable. So you, you've got to keep yourself, keep on your toes. And um, as, as you know, as you get older, obviously, perhaps you don't have the, quite the same energy levels as you would or the same sort of cut and thrust. But um, I think the, the way I do it is that I um, have never given up my role um, in agency. Essentially, I, I am a negotiator within the heart of the international team. I am transacting, I'm listing, I'm at pitches, um, I get into the trenches. And, um, and I love that. I'm very competitive. So I, I'm kind of, um, you know, always comparing myself to, to my troops in a positive way, I hasten to add. Um, and, and, and I think that's good for them too, because they kind of think, they think, oh, well, he's, you know, he's sort of practices what he preaches. Um, and the, the, bit, the sales side is what I love. And, um, and I think if you're, if you're engaged on a day-to-day basis, if you're transacting, you're going to be up to speed with all of the, you know, be it legislative changes, um, be it with the particular marketplace and valuations, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I, I, that's the bit that I think keeps me sort of fresh, I suppose, I hope, and relevant for now at least. And is there any property that you're working on at the moment that you love or you'd like to talk about? There is a property that we are currently acting on in the south of France, which belongs to the widow of a, of a, of a grandee. Um, and um, again, it's that sort of, you know, personal thing. It's become a real, a real drive for me to try and um, sell this. And actually, um, it's been one of those properties where um, the price wasn't right at the start. And um, there were numerous other agencies involved at the start. And anyway, we, we sort of have lost all of those as, as time has passed. And I'm absolutely intent on selling it. It's actually located in the um, just inland of Cannes. It's a, a beautiful um, rural position with a with a stream through it. It's um, It's got beautiful pedigree i mean lovely lovely features it's um it's it's got a a sort of um i suppose sort of turn of the century 19 early 1900s sort of feel feel about it which which is very rare actually in that part of the world 
Uh, but the, the gardens are glorious. It, it, it's evergreen. And um, yes, it, it's just, uh, just impossibly beautiful. And um, I would love to be able to, and I think we're pretty close, Sissy. The thing about agents, we're always optimistic. We're pretty close to, to selling it. And that would give me great joy because again, this is a, a situation where, you know, the, the, the people involved are a little bit aged and, and, and unwell. And, um, you know, it would, it would be wonderful to be able to, to sell that one after what has been, you know, quite an arduous few years for, for, for them um, and us, I suppose, as a result. Um, but I, as I said, I think we're getting very close. So obviously with everything going on this year with COVID and the impact that, that has on international travel, it's really exciting to hear that we're still continuing to push ahead with our international expansion plans would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the offices that we've got opening over the next few weeks and what's to come for the international department at night frank yes of course with pleasure um yeah very excited to to announce um that we will be opening um a branded office in the heart of paris in the sixth arrondissement which is on the left bank um and with the with our partner juno immobilier who we've been working with now for about three years they are creating a premium brand or a prestige brand which is going to be called juno fine property night frank and um we will be launching this office um formally and to the public come the third week in October. So very excited there. Um, we've um, we've seen a, a redoubling of activity in Paris um, since the lockdown has terminated. And, um, you know, given the values and the sort of enduring appeal of Paris, um, we're, we're seeing increasing demand for the City of Light. So we're thrilled there. In terms of Juno Fine Property, as I said, we've been working with them for three years. Um, they're an excellent team. It's headed up by an American lady called Alison Ashby. It's a family business that's been running for 30 plus years in Paris. And um, what is most appealing to us is really the sort of values that they share. Incredibly similar similar to Knight Frank and, uh, you know, putting putting our client and customer base, you know, before anything else and their, their well-being and that sort of real estate journey of trust and long-term sort of ownership. And also um, up in the Alps, um, which again has benefited um, hugely from the sort of post-lockdown release, we've seen um, increasing numbers of people looking for for green and and obviously sort of a bit of elbow room and and, and clean, sort of healthy and wellness and, and verbier. Um, up in the um, Swiss Alps is is one of those places which appeals to an, a very broad international clientele. Obviously, looking for the for that sort of altitude and and wellness and and obviously the skiing and the and the the outdoor mountain air, but also um, Verbier is rather unusual in the sense that it is also a bit of a fiscal paradise. So people will go there for tax reasons often and make it their permanent home, which is rather unusual, obviously, in the sort of alpine setting, um, which so, as I said, you know, Belgians, Americans, Brits, you name it, uh, Verbier, it really does attract um, a very, very broad pool of nationalities um, seeking the two, the marriage of the two. There's international schools up there too. So very easy for young families also to make it a home. Um, and our partners there, Nef Prestige, who we've worked with now for um, over 10 years around Lake Geneva, are finally, and we're delighted to be 
sort of supporting them on this journey and making a move into the Alps because the Genevoise, the Geneva clientele are also incre- incredibly interested, obviously, in, in, in the Alps. Um, and, and Verbier really is one of those sort of hotspots for, for them too. So again, you know, wonderful marriage with NEF. We, we've worked with them for so long, a very sort of trusted uh, advisor, uh, very reliable and um, people that we get on incredibly well with. So uh, excited about that too. So to begin to wrap up every podcast, we do a quick fire round. And the first question of which is Marbella or Madrid? Madrid. Classic or contemporary? Classic. Can or Saint-Tropez? Saint-Tropez. Call or email? Call. Office or working from home? Office. Tea or coffee? Tea. Swimming pool or tennis court? Swimming pool, definitely. Walk or run? Walk. And finally, France or the UK? UK. So the final question that we ask everybody to round up the episode is what does being a partner in property mean to you? Yes, this is an interesting one. I think, I suppose the reputational aspects of estate agency have in the past always been somewhat sort of um, tarnished, I would say. And I think, you know, Knight Frank has always really approached real estate um, from an advisory perspective, I suppose. You know, we, we put people before everything else. And and we often say to each other, and I, you know, I to my team, that sometimes the, you know, the, it's not sort of today's, um, transaction that matters really it's tomorrow's and, and in order for us to be here long term you know what we do today really sort of influences the future so you know trust we're in it for the long term it, it's really accompanying our our buyers and our sellers every step of the way giving them best advice making sure that you give them sort of the bad news too because actually it's easy to give good news but uh, imparting bad news is is often more difficult but but often more telling and and I think, um, you know, that long term investment in not only um, our customer, but ourselves and how we approach the real estate industry is absolutely fundamental. So, um, you know, I'd say we're, we're, we're an equal partner in this journey with our clients and our customers. And um, it's absolutely imperative that we maintain that high level of ethic and, and promote those values internally. And, and of course, to the industry as a whole, which um, we're constantly trying to do. Brilliant, Mark, thank you so much. That's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of At Home With. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you shared this episode on social media, and please check out the show notes for more information. I'll be back next Wednesday with another exciting episode.